Welcome to Sweet Valley Diaries, the podcast where what we did on our summer vacation was we fell in love with a teen rock star on the run from a murderous groupie boyfriend. And we saved a rich little girl from certain death during a mudslide. And now, let's never speak of it again. Super Edition number four, Malibu Summer. Come along with the Wakefield twins for all the sun and fun of a Malibu summer. Exclamation point. Hi, welcome to Sweet Valley Diaries, a special edition episode. I am your host, Marissa Flaxbart, and I am joined via remote telecommunication by Frank Bednars in Chicago. Hi, Frank. Hi, hi, Marissa. Thank you for reading A Malibu Summer. When I handed Frank this book, it was something that I have now made a habit of, uh, maybe like 25% of the time, when I ask somebody if they're, or, or someone expresses interest in the podcast, I like had this, we were in Boston with some other friends, and I had a copy of the book in my purse, and I just pulled it out and was like, oh, you want to be on the podcast? How about you read this book, Malibu Summer? Is that how you remember it? Yeah. And then you gave me this <laughs> book. And I, I guess I owe you now um, two ninety five international. Yes. And one, a pound 50 UK, three ninety five Australian, four ninety five New Zealand. Okay. Speaking of things our books say, my book says... Malibu Summer used very good, and I would like to report that this book, which I purchased on the internet, uh, fell apart while I was reading it. So, so much for used very good. One really frustrating thing about these special editions is that they are not available digitally. So when I give away my hard copy, I have to get another hard copy. But on the topic of hard copies of Sweet Valley High novels, I have to commend Frank and his wife, my friend Meredith, for being a major benefactor to the early days of my Sweet Valley High book collection on, I think it was like my 25th birthday, which is crazy to think. You had procured somehow like a large quantity of Sweet Valley High novels that you guys gave me as a birthday present. Oh, you're very welcome. I I didn't remember how many we gave you. I do remember about the one that got away. There were like a hundred at a... um thrift store in, in South Salt Lake, Utah, one through 108 or something, like a ridiculous collection that was just lined up on a thrift store shelf. And I asked you and you didn't respond until I like was was in the plane. And I was like, oh, I should have bought all those books. Because oh, I was like, which oh, ones don't goodness. you have? <laughs> of course, I found out reasoning to uh, listening to uh, your podcast for number 30 that you, you've only read through through about 50. Yes. I feel like I am out in the world as like a Sweet Valley High expert. And I have done as an adult a very close reading of a lot of these books and a lot of writing. So I wear that proudly. But I I'm, will absolutely admit to the fact that I have only read the first 50 books. I own many more than that. I also, every time we do one of these special edition books, I am reading those for the first time. I never covered those when I was doing my blog all those years, uh, uh, sweetvalleydiaries.net. You can still read those blog posts if you want to. These are always new to me, and it's such a mindfuck because they exist out of time in a way that has zero bearing on what happens in the main trajectory of these books. These Are these larger than the regular numbered serials? Oh, yes. 
They are a good like 75 pages longer. Okay. Are are they all like trips like this where none of the regular, I mean, I guess except for three characters, like I get the impression no one else is in this story that ever occurs again, right? Well, we did read so far the special Christmas book, which is literally, the book was literally called Special Christmas, uh, which was a delight to record. That was all taking place in Sweet Valley, and all of the usual characters of Sweet Valley were there, plus Suzanne Devlin was in town from New York. And, but the funny thing about reading Malibu Summer is that I very recently read a book called Spring Break, cleverly, uh, which which I released on this feed. Uh, listeners, if you haven't listened to the Spring Break episode, uh, you can go back and check what I'm about to say for yourself. But the Malibu Summer and Spring Break follow almost this exact same formula. Jessica and Elizabeth go on a trip. In this case, there's one other person from Sweet Valley there, Lila Fowler. And they are away for a period of time. And there is romance afoot. There is the twins pretending to be each other afoot. There's danger. There's a big rainstorm at the climax of both of the books. It's just that in spring break, it takes place in France. And in Malibu summer, it takes place, not surprisingly, in Malibu. Also just the the basic premise that they went away and all the regular rules are... I mean, I don't know what the regular rules are because I've never read another Sweet Valley book. So I, I shouldn't... Well, that answers a question that we always ask the guests. So thank you for answering the question. I didn't even have to ask. Uh, so this was your first one. Oh my gosh, what what a pick for the first one. I'm very pleased. But I will say that just to finish the conversation of the about the super editions in general, that they all take place during some kind of school break. So when the kids don't have to be at school every day. So they have an opportunity to do something special and not have school getting in the way. Like school gets in the way so badly in the normal books. <laughs> well, so let's let's not waste any more time. Let's talk about Malibu Summer. I've got a book that is just full of little flags of passages that I am excited about. Well, I, I have to say that this is this is proof that uh, you're a lot more Elizabeth than I am because I have this sheet of paper that that's a recycled piece of uh, of, <laughs> of attorney work product actually that that has a few page numbers written down, but it's mostly just a bunch of nonsense. I think you ought to begin, or this this is just going to be word salad the whole episode. <laughs> Okay. Well, I will say that Jessica, if she had a sheet of attorney work paper, it would have been something that she had stolen from Ned Wakefield's office, her father, the lawyer. <laughs> right. So, Frank, you are have just outed yourself as a lawyer. Do you often uh, use, like, attorney talk in your daily life to make comments about, because this is something Ned Wakefield does, making comments <laughs> about how something is unjust or legal or or... A breach of what I, I can't even think of a good example of what Ned does. He he makes jokes a lot, I guess. But he he every time he makes a comment that has some connection to whether something is is lawful, the book mentions that he's a lawyer. So it's like his <laughs> lawyer trait. I feel I feel kind of cheated now that I didn't read a regular book because he he doesn't appear in this one at all. Uh, I I do I do sprinkle it, but mo- what happens more often is because law is so central to drama, you as a lawyer will often opinion on how absurd some plot point in a, in a work is uh, like, it, it's almost impossible to watch like uh, like law and order or something because 
like, yeah, you know, the Sam Waterston character, he's really good, really good prosecutor, but all of his cases are reversed on appeal because there's these crazy prejudicial outbursts. And then it's like, Oh, I withdraw the question. And it's like, no, you, you can't do it. Like every <laughs> trial, like the judge will catch on what you're doing. He probably should have been disbarred by now. <laughs> I mean, he, he's a really great character. Just that, you know, courtroom tropes are, 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 are things that, that rarely happen in real life, but they happen all the time because I guess all the other legal writers, they watch other, the same kind of law shows. And then it's like, oh, of course, the lawyer is going to say some harumpy thing and someone will just say objection without explaining the grounds. And it doesn't even seem like there are any legal grounds. And I can speak to this thing you're talking about because I had a professor in grad school, a screenwriting professor, the esteemed and amazing Ron Friedman, who actually told us that when we write law scenes or hospital scenes, that we can't just write them the way they really are. We have to give the audience a certain amount of what they're expecting a legal room or a hospital space to be like. Speaking of hospitals, toward the end of this book, I had this flash of just deep empathy for the Wakefield twins about how much time they spend in hospitals. They're 16 years old. They're constantly at one hospital or another. So... Well, but that's that's for the end. That's the that's the climactic ending. It ends in a hospital. Well, not exactly. It's only, that's the climax, but it, it ends at a rock concert. Yeah. But the, the ending is yeah. The ending is is a lot. Uh, and I, I plan to read exhaustive passages from the ending. So get ready for that. Buckle up. I'm going to have to repeat the music bed in the background many times over to cover these exhaustive passages. But they're worth it, you guys. So this book starts out with Jessica, Lila, and Elizabeth on the beach. And Jessica is desperately trying to convince Elizabeth to go get a job as a mother's helper in Malibu. Lila has already gotten this job, and Jessica desperately wants to spend her summer in Malibu. She knows that her parents will not let her go do this unless Elizabeth does it too. Now, Malibu is probably about a two-hour drive from Sweet Valley, but they're going to stay there. In the book, it actually says that it's a 90-minute drive. Oh, 90 minutes. This is actually, I'm so glad you captured that because this is such another clue to the mystery of where is Sweet Valley? Okay, 90 minutes from Malibu along the beach. So this is definitely still heavily in Orange County territory. Oh my gosh. I think it's Newport Beach or possibly Huntington. This is really, this is... What I'm thinking. It's not inland. Sweet Valley is is not like the inland um, empire. Sweet Valley is, okay, on, is a be- beach okay. town. They go to the beach constantly. How is it a valley then? I think it's got to be a misnomer. Uh, all right. All right. All right. I'm going to suspend <laughs> my disbelief now. Everything else is credible, but Sweet Valley on the beach. All right. So the book wastes precious time in chapter one by letting us believe that Elizabeth is somehow not going to be convinced by Jessica that she's going to do this. Of course, she is convinced. Then Jessica goes and she interviews with this woman who says something kind of creepy, which is like, oh, we've never had twins working for our company before. I think our clients would really respond to that. Yeah, that was kind of strange. But you never hear from her again. No, well, it's especially odd because it's not like they're going to be working in the same house. So... Jessica sets up at the very start of this book that there's this hot new rock singer. His name is Tony Sargent. And she's appalled that Elizabeth has never heard of Tony Sargent because he's got hit songs like 
oh girl, you're so special to me. And I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but um, definitely has got some hot top 10 tunes and he's burning up the charts. His song, let's see, one of his songs is called, uh, he has a song called You're On My Mind, uh, which made shivers run up and down Jessica's back when he sang the lines, but baby, still I find that you're on my mind. Jessica felt like crying. His voice really got to her. It sounded rough and scratchy and incredibly loving and sexy all at the same time. (laughs) So... That's Tony Sargent, the singer, which I mentioned because when Jessica goes to the office to interview for the job, she finds out that one of the two clients that needs a mother's helper uh, has the last name Sargent, and they're cousins of Tony Sargent. So she jumps right on that. And what about Elizabeth? Uh, well, or what about the other family? The Bennett family? I- I'm going to say the Bennett family is supposed to to remind you of uh, gentry, uh, you know, minor nobility, because they live in some enormous mansion. And it, it's made clear that they don't really need to work. They just do it sometimes if as a hobby, Malcolm, apparently. Uh, but when she gets there, they're not actually home, the parents, uh, the kid is there. And, and so is Maria, the, how did it describe her? The, is she a maid? Oh, she, I think they might have described her as a maid, but she's definitely like the person that runs the house. Essentially, she does everything, um, and she's she was in her twenties. That's it said right. She was of Mexican descent, and that she was in her twenties. She has a soft accent. Just to set up for the gladiators at home, after they get the jobs, Elizabeth, who has told Jessica explicitly that Jessica has to do all the work to get this job, like if I'm going to agree to do this, I am definitely not going to be suckered into doing all the work. As soon. As Jessica finds out that they can get the jobs, she realizes that she has to go away to cheerleading camp, which she's forgotten about. She has to lead cheerleading camp with Robin. And she's forgotten about this. It's like Thursday. She's leaving, you know, Saturday morning. And she's just she's just beside herself because Mrs. Norman said that the meetings in person with the families had to happen that weekend or else the whole thing was going to fall through. So Elizabeth is like, well, fine, I guess we're not going to Malibu. But Jessica, in like 30 seconds, has her feeling guilty enough that she drives up herself and and pretends to be Jessica at the sergeant's house. But because she does this, she is the one who is able to see that the Bennett's house, which Jessica has chosen for Elizabeth only because Jessica wants to work for the Tony Sargent family. She's sure that ha- that taking care of an infant, the, the sergeants have an infant, Sam, who's three months old, I believe. She's like, that'll be easy. Lila told me babies are easy. And I'll probably meet Tony Sargent. And they probably live in the big mansion. So I'm going to give um, Elizabeth the job with a little troublesome girl. She's found out that the Bennett's little girl is a pain in the ass. And other other people have complained. So, But she pretends to Elizabeth like she's giving her the better gig. Well, when Elizabeth goes there in person, she is inclined to see that Jessica really meant what she said, even though Jessica was, of course, lying at her ass, because of what you just said, Frank. The Bennett's house is huge. And she goes to the sergeant's house. The sergeant's house that it endlessly describes, I mean, it cannot emphasize this enough times in the book, that it's small. And then it's apparently littered with lots of hoarder stuff. They've never really unpacked. And there's just stuff piled on top of stuff. And 
she couldn't imagine even where she would stay. And they explained, well, no, you can't stay in the guest room. First of all, it's full of junk. Second, uh, you need to be with the baby. You won't be able to hear the baby if you're all the way in the guest room. And so- Oh my God. Specifically, there's a metaphor that gets used repeatedly to describe this house, which is that it is the size of a postage stamp. <laughs> I have a passage, actually, from page 30. This is when Elizabeth first sees the house. Jess wasn't kidding, she said aloud. She really did give me a break. The sergeant house was ordinary by any standard, and compared to the Bennett place, it was postage stamp size. <clears throat> Elizabeth felt like giggling as she walked up the front path. Then she remembered she was masquerading as Jessica. She had to be on her best behavior to make sure her sister got the job. It, this book is very, very dismissive of the sergeant's home. But I started to also be like, what is wrong with these people? They're, they're very nice. Like, they're a nice young couple. They live in a postage stamp-sized house in Malibu, which is weird to think of. Uh, but when Jessica arrives, they, not only does she have to sleep with the baby, in case the baby wakes up in the night, so the parents aren't going to tend to the baby when he wakes up in the night. The the teenager that they hired to live in their house for the summer is going to. But they have her sleeping on a cot. Yeah. A cot. Did you catch yeah. that? It was a fleeting detail. And I was like, you're going you're gonna to put this girl on a cot for the entire summer? That's like cruel and unusual, as Ned Wakefield might say. <laughs> Well, one another thing that that struck me about this 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 house and the sergeants is how it is that they're affording a living nanny for the summer because it seems like otherwise they're I don't know maybe they're just a highly disorganized but still well off family. Yeah, it's very weird. I mean, Malibu is what Jessica imagines it to be. It is a place with gigantic houses, and it's beautiful. It's, you know, probably one of the wealthiest communities in the country. I would, I don't have the facts on that. I wouldn't be surprised if it were one of the wealthiest uh, areas in the country, if not on the planet. It is weird that there's this family uh, living in a postage-sized postage stamp sized house that is also six long blocks from the beach. It says that phrase a lot, uh, too. Six six blocks. Not just six blocks. Six long blocks. Yeah, and Elizabeth knew that Jessica was not going to like that. But I was... In the, in the Malibu area, as I understand it, I feel like you have to cross a highway to get to the beach no matter what. Like the PCH, the Highway 1, is like along the beach and on the other side, maybe I'm thinking of the Palisades or something, but that's not important. But it is, uh, <laughs> it's, this is just a little local flavor. I, I can't have a California local uh, episode without talking about freeways at least once. Uh, well, while, while, while we're talking about that, I, I noticed later on they make references out nine. I, is it true that in that county they would be calling it the nine? Oh, yes. Okay. In Los Angeles County, I can't think of a single freeway that wouldn't be referred to as the whatever number it is. And unfortunately, it has stuck in my head so much that a couple sometimes when I go back to Chicago, I will accidentally refer to like the 64 or like the <laughs> 8090. I, I have I have done it before. I, I, I think I, I caught myself and was so ashamed, so deeply ashamed that I have never done it again. But um, I don't think I'm the only one that has had this problem. Let's talk about Taryn. All right. So apparently everyone says that Taryn is a nightmare child. And uh, actually, there's this funny passage where uh, Elizabeth is thinking, well, she would be a pretty child if she wasn't constantly in a pout. 
and she never wants to do anything. Yeah. Won't go outside, doesn't want to go to the beach. She has a million toys because they're super wealthy, but she doesn't want to play with any of them. And she's visibly very unhappy all the time. Seems like Elizabeth thinks that, I, I guess her character, who I'm not impressed with in this book, I'm not sure if there's some ro- role reversal going on in this story, but I like Jessica a lot more in this story. Uh, <laughs> but okay. I guess she has an instinct for a moral duty that this this child is so sad and I'm sure that, you know, with some stick to itness or, or elbow grease or something that 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 she can make her sad life a little bit better. And it, it describes when she starts working there that she quickly concludes that the reason the child is so sad, Taryn is so sad, is because her parents are hardly ever there and they don't speak to each other and they with affection toward each other at all. Yeah, this book really lays it on thick that the Bennets have a bad marriage and that Elizabeth is thinks it's just such a terrible thing for their marriage to be in such a state and how could anybody live like this and and oh they're so wealthy but they their lives are so poor or whatever. But I actually thought that the introduction of Taryn felt a little bit like the beginning of a horror movie. You know, you have the new, the new girl in the house shows up at the front door and she's uh, creeping up the stairs behind this like 20 year old Maria who is running the household of these rich people. And um, I have a passage here. Uh, you can tell me if you think it's uh, creepy or not. Also, we have the reveal of a hot new eye color that um, might just uh, rocket toward the top of our eye color hierarchy here <laughs> in Sweet Valley. And this, Maria said, throwing open a door beyond which ran a long corridor, is Taryn's wing. Elizabeth's eyes widened as they passed a playroom and a TV room, finally reaching a huge bedroom filled with toys and dolls of every size and description. In the corner, a little girl was forlornly pushing a doll in a baby carriage. Taryn, Maria said gently, I want you to meet someone. I don't want to, Taryn said sullenly, looking away. I should do a little girl voice. I don't want to, Taryn said sullenly, looking away. Elizabeth gave Maria a quick, questioning look. Maria nodded. Hi, Taryn, Elizabeth said, crossing the room to kneel by the child's side. What's your doll's name? Taryn glared. She doesn't have a name, she said, grabbing the doll out of the carriage. Elizabeth took a deep breath. Well, my name is Elizabeth, she said cheerfully. I'm going to stay with you this summer. I'm going to help take care of you. I don't need anyone to take care of me, Taryn retorted, her large violet blue eyes filling with tears. Go away. My doll and me want to be alone, please. <laughs> so. And Elizabeth asks, did her I say something doll. wrong? And Maria says, no, that's just the way she is. So. <laughs> that's Taryn. But when Jessica goes over to the Bennett's house, to uh, to kind of hang out, which, of course, Jessica is beside herself and is quickly scheming about how she can convince Elizabeth to switch houses. But when Jessica goes over there, she comes up with this super weird scheme that really enchants Taryn, which she tells her these stories. Yeah, that's right. And the first time, I don't think she was doing it in a, in a friendly way. It didn't read that way no, to me. No, not at all. Because she started out by saying... 
she was like dissing the the child. She was calling she I think she was sincerely or you know half sin- sincerely calling her a wicked little girl named Taryn. Let me tell you a story about a wicked little girl named Taryn. And then she tells a couple of these about how the wicked little girl is is killed or banished um, and Taryn just eats it up. Yeah, the second one I think was something like, there was once a wicked little girl named Taryn and she turned into a dollar bill and do you know what happened next? And Taryn is like, what? And Jessica's like, "Is somebody spent her. I don't know, it's just, the first one was worse than that. No, you're totally right. Jessica is fucking with this little girl because she's being a jerk. I mean, the little girl is being a jerk and Jessica has no patience for it. Right. Taryn, Jessica frames it every time as a secret that she's going to tell Taryn. And I think that's what Taryn responds to. It, it, it must be that. I, I mean, she just explains to her sister later on that, that they're on the same wavelength. And I think there might be something to that. Yeah. Um, I think maybe that they're, they are, um, maybe they have a similar worldview in some fundamental way, but there's something to that as well. The first time Jessica told one of these stories, I was like, oh my God, this is so creepy. But the book really tries, and tries pretty (laughs) successfully, honestly, to spin it into something that is like kind of fun and like a fun little kid thing to the point that. Jessica says that her dad used to tell her and Elizabeth stories like this when she was growing up. And I can imagine Elizabeth being like, oh, I don't want to be a wicked little girl. And Jessica being like, I am a wicked little girl. That's right. Tell me more. So that's, and that's what maybe that's the reaction Taryn's having too. Other details about uh, Jessica's visit to the Bennett house is that there is a sexy neighbor named Cliff Sherman. And Jessica has her sights set on Cliff Sherman from the moment she sees him. And lucky Jessica, the feelings are mutual. <laughs> Cliff also has her has his uh, <laughs> his heart set on Jessica. Uh, no, no interest in Elizabeth, though they are identical. So I always like that when the boys just know by their personalities which is the one that's for them. It also makes clear that Elizabeth had no interest in her. Jessica is telling Elizabeth about that boy that walked by, and Elizabeth just says, oh, yeah, that's Cliff. He lives next door. Like, no big deal. And so Cliff probably got no big deal from her and is like, okay, I'll I'll find some more promising quarry, which what she does. Yeah, there's no real story, though, at all to Cliff and Jessica's romance. So that's one difference between this book and the Spring Break book, which is all about Jessica's romance with the young man whose name was Jean-Luc in in Paris, I believe was his name. And I hope that's right. It was Jean something. Um, so, uh, but there is one important thing that hap- that comes of Jessica's in early infatuation with Cliff, which is that Cliff is having a big party at his house in honor of a buddy of his that's coming to town. And he invites the girls and Jessica is like, finally, uh, something good is happening in this Malibu trip. But... Then she finds out that the st- sergeants really need her. They need someone to stay at home and take care of v- the baby, Sam, that night. Um, these are, boy, th- these parents are giving the Bennets a run for their money in terms of negligence. I mean, they might be they might be nice, but I just think, I mean, leave your baby with a babysitter, that's fine. But boy, it's a three-month-old baby. They're just like very casual about <laughs> leaving his care to a 16 year old, very famously flaky girl. But well, they don't know say, that. 
Elizabeth well, interviewed for her, and she was on her best behavior. That's so. true. But they they say to Jessica that if she can get someone else to fill in for her, that she can go to the party, <laughs> which is kind of like, it could just be any person off the street that Jessica could find to fill in for her. But of course, she asks Elizabeth to do it. And Elizabeth agrees because she doesn't care about Cliff Sherman's party. And I was expecting Elizabeth to pretend to be Jessica uh, for this again, which also would have fit with the plot of Spring Break. But thankfully... It's on the up and up, which I thought was kind of funny because nobody puts the pieces together that maybe the wrong girl could have uh, applied for the job or like come for the home visit. Uh, that doesn't matter. That's in the past. Um, the book make these books make a big play of how Elizabeth feels really dirty, you know, tricking people by pretending to be someone else. But she does it pretty easily, and and then they forget about it. Like it was not a in, huge breach of trust. Yeah, I, I have a question about this. Do you have you ever talked to twins about this book, or, or somebody that has an identical twin? Because a few things that 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 struck me as as kind of odd. I would imagine again, I don't know, but maybe twins could tell us uh, that it's sort of a pretty biggish deal to impersonate the other one, and that you have to have like a good reason to do that. I'd imagine, but. Um, you know, in this one, it's like, oh yeah, cheerleading camp. Okay, well, gotta be, gotta be Jessica again, cheerleading camp. It, it seems um, like something that would be really fun as a prank, and sometimes they do do it as a prank. But to do it seriously, which I feel like at this point has happened way more times than prank reasons, does seem like a big deal. But I have not talked to any identical twins about this, so I that's a good idea. I should have to find some. Identical twins. I know more fraternal twins. Okay. I, I, I have no direct experience. I'm probably making some uh, identical twin that listens to this someday very upset. One day, <laughs> one time I started a job and in my class of like 26 people starting work for AT&T back in 1999, uh, there were three set of identical twins but they were all starting the same job, which means that this whole plot point about like, oh, well, we both need to work in Malibu and, and do the, basically the same job. That part apparently checks out. But um, I, I just don't know about this whole impersonation thing. And then, of course, we'll get to it much later. There's this odd thing where it just flatly declares that twins have a sixth sense um, about each other's welfare. Um, but I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I'm ruining your podcast with my nonsense. Um Let's get back on track. <laughs> I don't think so. I feel like twin-related speculation is entirely valid here on the Sweet Valley Diaries. So where were we? We were talking about how, oh, Elizabeth agrees to sub in uh, for Jessica during Cliff's party. And when she gets to the sergeant's house, they're like, oh, great. So glad you're here. Awesome. And oh, by the way... Uh, there's a, a somebody's coming by. He's going to be staying with us for a few days. They didn't even tell Jessica about this. They're very, very quick about it. They mention explicitly that this guy is coming over. And oh, by the way, he's 21. They mention it. It's like they tell her three things about him. And one of them is that he's 21. And then they leave the house. His name is Jamie Galbraith. And he shows up and he's a student at Yale. And he loves books. And he and Elizabeth have a thing right off the bat. So it says, <clears throat> oh, and last but not least, there's the refrigerator. Help yourself some chocolate cake or whatever you find. Oh, Josh said, 
Did you tell Liz about Jamie? He asked from the doorway when they're leaving, adjusting his tie. I thought you told her, Lucy clapped a hand on her forehead. They must be a very absent-minded family. So maybe maybe that's the answer to why they live in such a small place with crap anywhere. But, um, and then then they get away in their Toyota, which is another one of the things that I noticed in this book. They don't describe a lot of things in detail, but everyone has a make of car. Yep, that's Sweet Valley (laughs) High. We know exactly what kind of car everybody drives. And that's how they refer to cars, too. I mean, people do that in real life. But at one point, I think Maria says to Elizabeth, take the Camaro. (laughs) Um, So very specific. Jamie puts on a record and Elizabeth is like, I don't know much about music. And the record that Jamie puts on is Nina Simone, which this book was published in August of 1986. In May of 1986, a book that we have already read called Alone in the Crowd was published, where Enid and Elizabeth are obsessed with a record by Nina Simone, and Elizabeth goes to the record store to buy it, buy it, and it's like an important linchpin to the plot. It's The Nina Simone record is like a MacGuffin in this book. But in Malibu Summer, does she say, oh, Jamie, you put on Nina Simone, that's the one music I do know about. Oh, it's like, now I really love you. No, the book acts as if Elizabeth has never heard of Nina Simone before, and I... Just wanted to point that out. That's a very uh, a pedantic uh, moment from me uh, claiming my Sweet Valley High experthood, I guess. <laughs> but listeners, come on, what's the deal with that? But anyway, when she she one of the only things she knows about Jamie is that he is twenty one. So when he's coming on to her, the, the book says Elizabeth blushed. Was he asking her for a date? Sixteen must seem a little young to a junior in college. And I was just like, oh, Elizabeth, honey, please. Yeah, I have to say that from the moment Galbraith was introduced as being 21, uh, I felt a little bit of horror in my stomach because a lot of the things in the book are are telegraphed and you can tell what is going to happen right before they happen. And the strong impression you get is, oh, I get it. It's going to be a repetitionist comedy thing where, you know, her sister went off to the party, but actually she was going to meet with this dreamy hunk guy. But, you know, too bad he's 21. And and that's exactly what happens, because, like, within three pages of this being introduced, they are, they are dancing to Nina Simone. Um, and I... I, I my horror was a little bit confirmed there. Yeah. And I was talking about this with Kat, my roommate who was on the spring break episode, actually just kind of comparing for her how Malibu summer was similar to spring break. And Kat rightly observed that it's not that a five year age difference is such a big deal, but 16 and 21 is not a mere five year age difference. This is the whole life difference. And a 16 year old is, is a kid still. And a 21 year old is an adult man. And I, was super skeeved out by this, uh, but it doesn't really matter at all for reasons that uh, we will get to. Um, and let's start, let, let's go ahead. Should we just tell the listeners about about this? I guess I should say that that Elizabeth and Jamie plan some secret dates, but Elizabeth tells Jamie flat out that she doesn't think that she can really like commit to dating him or at least not be like public about their relationship until after the 4th of July when her parents are going to come up to Malibu. They're going to wait till the 4th of July to make the 90 minute drive to Malibu to see their two 16 year old daughters. And 
she is pretty sure that they would not approve of Jamie and she wants to tell them about it in person to find out if they would approve or not before she goes forward with the relationship. So like it's this funny mix of like scruples and no scruples. Like she's willing to secretly go on dates with this guy, but she's not willing to publicly go on dates with him or really commit to him until she talks to her parents about it. It's like, you know, I, I have but. to say that whoever ghost wrote this book, uh, I think was a Jessica because Elizabeth here and even more <laughs> so toward the end of the book comes off like a robot. Um, she, there's this whole, there's this whole internal monologue about what's going to tell her sister about this or anybody. And she concludes like, well, you know, I don't like keeping stuff a secret and bad at it and everything. And it's bad and dishonesty and moral imperative or whatever. But, you know, that would be distracting. I'll just talk to mom and dad when they get here in some independent amount of time, which by the way, is another thing. This is, book is called Malibu Summer, but I think the whole book takes place over the course of like 10 days. Yeah, I think you're right. So Elizabeth just makes this, I'm going to keep it a secret. It's going to be super secret. I'm not going to tell anyone, not not even the family that's hosting this alleged 21-year-old that we're dating. And also, uh, I can't call or write, even though she's writing her friend Enid, who, by the way, at one point, I remember she put a letter saying, oh, Enid's having a great summer. I'm wondering if there's like another book about Enid's great summer. But she can't like <laughs> say, you know, is it skeezy for someone that's like deep into college to be into a high school girl? And then the answer, I think, among all people everywhere would would be, yeah, that's pretty skeezy. And um, but, but she's made this <laughs> block and she just keeps building on it. Like, no, no it's going to be a secret. It's going to be our little our little tryst. I don't know. <clears throat> OK, go on. Right after. Elizabeth reveals this information to Jamie at their date at the Beach Cafe, it's called. Uh, These books just can't get more boring with the names of their uh, establishments. So at the Beach Cafe, she breaks it to him, you know, this weird secret, wanting to date him in secret thing. And Jamie is super on board for this. He, he is really into it. And he's so into Elizabeth. And then we get these like three asterisks on the page. Like we're going to have a separate, a, a big dramatic separate section of this chapter. This is right in the middle of the book. And suddenly it we shift into Jamie's. Uh, if uh, uh, Gladiators, if you could see me, I will. I would be doing air quotes. Jamie's <laughs> perspective. And I'm going to read Jamie's thoughts because I said, oh, my God, aloud at the book when this reveal came up. It was crazy, he thought, looking over the water as he waited for Elizabeth to finish making a phone call to the Bennett's house. He had experienced a lot of things so far in his life, but he had never imagined assuming a disguise as a regular guy could be so exhilarating. He had figured the couple of weeks he'd have to spend in Malibu with his cousin would be incredibly boring. He hadn't counted on meeting Elizabeth. Tony Sargent had never lived an ordinary life, not since he was a kid. When he was 11, he had won a singing contest, and he was given the chance to sing with a band on a radio station. That ended Tony Sargent's normal life. All of a sudden, people were calling his parents, telling them their son was real star material. By the time he was 13, Tony had a manager and was singing at clubs in Los Angeles. Teen magazines plastered his picture all over their covers, and fan mail started pouring in. That was only the beginning. Tony's manager, Jody Phillips, was sharp. He knew the market, and he knew he had a star in Tony Sargent. 
Soon Tony was appearing on TV talk shows. Next, he recorded his first album, and one of his songs made it to number one. Then he had gotten the movie contract. Tony Sargent was a star. Sometimes he couldn't believe it had all happened so fast. He was only 17, and already he had things some people never had, such as fame and a lot of money. But he didn't have what other guys his age took for granted, a chance to just hang out, relax with friends, have a good time. And I could go on, and I would love to, uh, but... Jamie Galbraith is Tony Sargent, Frank. Oh, my God. I, I have to say, I saw that coming, like, two sentences before those asterisks. Um, so, yeah. I did not. I, thought, I was here. afraid you were going to say when he first showed up. I'm no, glad that you didn't no. figure it out then. <laughs> no, but right before those asterisks, he's like, yeah, no, I don't want to talk about, you know, he's being, he's being evasive, which by the I'm I'm sure we'll get into when we get to the boys section. It's just something that boys in this book do. But um, it, it occurred to me that when he's evasive, like, oh, my God, it's some great deception. And, of course, Elizabeth couldn't recognize him. I didn't know that they were going to layer it on with the whole, like, oh, they got a makeup artist, which, which is a detail they mentioned a couple of yeah, times. he dyed his hair brown. He got brown contacts and glasses. But lest you think, gladiators, that he's just really trying to be incognito because he's so sick of fans chasing him. No, Tony Sargent is literally on the run from a crazy groupie's uh, boyfriend. He like hooked up with this groupie and didn't know she had a boyfriend and he knew he shouldn't have done it, but he did anyway. And then the guy is threatening to kill him and it seems very serious about his threats to kill him. And so uh, Tony has to pretend that he's Jamie Galbraith so that he isn't murdered. And I have to say, the book emphasizes that this is serious. This is a direct quote that is repeated twice in the book, and I think should be the t subtitle of your episode because Frank is on the episode. But the quote is, Frankie meant business. And, <laughs> and it's right. one of these wonderful euphemisms. There's so many of them in this book. Um, but by meant business, they apparently mean that, that he's going to do a revenge killing of some sort. Um, that's what meant business meant. Um, <laughs> that's the full subtitle. Frankie meant business, <laughs> by which he means a revenge killing of some sort. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not even clear to me whether he had relations with that woman, the groupie, but... Um, no, it's unclear. But I, I feel like the spirit of the book and the spirit of euphemisms in the book and how they never write out anybody swearing, they just say some characters swore. I think he did. Um, I'm not. I kind of think he I'm did not too. justifying Frankie. Frankie is a bad guy. Okay, but uh, well, but, and Tony didn't know that the, that this woman had a boyfriend. Right. I mean, he was just doing what I'm pretty sure is pretty commonplace rock star behavior. I'm sure Lisa was all about it when she hooked up with Tony <laughs> well, that was Sargent. Lisa, right. I, I think they did it, but it doesn't matter, I guess, for the story that much. <laughs> I agree. Um, I think that it is an appropriate time for us to kind of set up the climactic ending. Oh, well, there's, 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 there's a simultaneous climax. I don't know if that's normal in these stories, but... They're, they're parallel. <laughs> Both of the sisters have their no, own No, they're thing. almost never simultaneous climaxes in these stories. Okay. Wait, I... Look, I I was raised Mormon, okay? <laughs> I don't know if that's why you're laughing, but it didn't occur to me 
until after I said that. It really didn't. I'm being sincere here. I know. Okay. All right. I actually am not entirely sure if what I said is literally true. Usually there's really only one main plot point. But in this book, there are these... Jessica and Elizabeth both have their own stories. And they're actually both involved in each other's stories in a way. But yeah, I guess we'll set it up by saying that the Bennets have uh, a terrible fight. Audrey and Malcolm Bennett are the parents of Taryn. They're very rich. They spend very little time together. And they spend very little time at home. Malcolm's always at his polo club. And Audrey is out shopping or at parties. And Taryn overhears her parents having this terrible fight where they kind of accuse each other of never loving each other. Audrey says something like, I think you might actually hate me. And then they accuse each other of manipulating Taryn for their own devices. And Taryn hears all this and she's sick already. She's like sneaked out of her bed, her sick bed to, she has a virus apparently, and overheard this conversation. And it just devastates her because her parents... Uh, real bad relationship is like the crux of Taryn's whole damage. They have Malcolm's give the line that that's like, I don't even know why you had her. And it, it, it was, oh, right. this, it was, that was the most traumatic thing. Cause it, it mentions later on that Taryn was thinking about it, but it's, it's, it's one of those, you know, it's a, it's a line from uh, it's a, it's a, it's wonderful a wonderful life, life. Line where it's like, shouldn't have even been born. And, and, and so Taryn takes part, like she in her heart concludes, they would be better if I was not around. And it's really sad. But I have to say that to set this up a little bit more, um, there was also the, the repetition of the game, the wicked little girl game. And uh, yes, this is one of the few page numbers I wrote down in my garbage notes. Uh, But I want to read (laughs) I want to read this this part right here because this this is before the fight happened, but it's just setting this up for Jessica. Um, Once upon a time, there was a wicked little girl named Taryn. She didn't know it, but she wasn't really a wicked little girl at all. Do you know what she was? Taryn shook her head, bug-eyed. She was a beautiful princess, Jessica said dramatically, but she was really in trouble because she was placed under a bad spell that made her wicked. Once the spell was broken, do you know what happened to that wicked little girl? She got nice, Taryn suggested, stuffing her thumb in her mouth. Yes, Jessica shrieked, throwing her arms around the child. I like that, she said shyly, sucking her thumb out of her mouth. I like you, she added, her blue eyes glowing. And it it actually made me a little bit misty-eyed because, uh, I don't know, it seemed a sincere connection between those characters. And I just wanted to throw that in there because it was my, for me, it was my favorite part, my favorite page in the whole book. Yeah, oh, it is sweet. It is amazing to watch Jessica go from just like purely like messing with this child to fostering this real connection. Now, it wouldn't be Jessica if she didn't have an ulterior motive, which is that she wants to switch places with Elizabeth. And she has learned that Elizabeth absolutely will not, after all of the manipulation that Jessica has pulled up to this point, Elizabeth refuses to switch places with her, to switch houses um, and jobs. And Jessica, she goes to the lengths of she she pretends to have a a, an allergy to cats, which this book taught me a lot of things. I'm having a lot of thoughts at the same time here. But this book taught me a lot of things. And because I had to Google so many 
things to be like, what is this? Or is this real? And one of the things I googled was, uh, can identical twins have different allergies? And yes, they can. I wondered that. They can. But it doesn't matter because Jessica has had an allergy test like six months ago that she forgot about. So Elizabeth knows she's not allergic to cats. The sergeants apparently have a cat. And so Jessica has to come up with some other plan for how to get Elizabeth to switch. And she thinks if she can prove that she really has this rapport with Taryn, that will convince Elizabeth that Jessica would be better for Taryn than Elizabeth is. And it's uh, a plan that I think would have worked on Elizabeth um, if if Jessica had put a little bit more energy into it. But the side effect of the plan is that Jessica does actually foster a really strong bond with Theron in her quest to uh, yeah. trick Elizabeth into switching houses so Jessica can live next to Cliff Sherman, her new boyfriend. <laughs> Which, oh my gosh. Yeah, there's a lot of... A, a lot of nonsense in in the the scheme. Uh, the whole the whole fact that she's unwinding her original thing because I, I guess that's what makes a, a comedy. That's the kind of humor that the that Jessica fosters. The whole thing where she has schemes, and then they're heightened, and then you know suddenly you're Lucy in the Chocolate Factory and you're trying to stuff all the mints or whatever. I adore um, that you see this book as a comedy. That makes me so delighted. <laughs> I mean, it is funny, and we do this podcast kind of as a comedy and treat the books as comedy, but I don't I don't usually think of them as being intentionally comedic, although there are always jokes and digs and burns, but, but you're right, there is a certain rhythm to the way the book unfolds, and Jessica's schemes, it's kind of a farce in a way, like Je- the way that Jessica sets up one thing and then the opposite happens, like her plans fall apart around her because that's her comeuppance. You know, there's something sort of slapstick about it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it reminds me, I can't even remember it, but uh, uh, it's a, I think it's a dramatic trope where, and another thing that's in here, where there's a lover that you think you can't have because you're like blood relatives or something, but then some other contrivances happen. And then as it turns out, no, he was 17 years old the whole time, not 21. Well, and this um, book has a great deal of dramatic irony where the reader knows stuff that the characters don't know. So we learn about yeah. the house being so small before Jessica does. We learn about Tony Sargent being Jamie Galbraith before any of the other characters know. Um, and we also learn something else that's huge before the other characters know, which is this guy comes to... Oh, wait, sorry. There's a huge storm. A guy comes to the sergeant's house. And he says, listen, I am Tony Sargent's manager, Jody. And I have reason to believe that Frankie LaSalle has found him and is going after him. Where is he? And Lucy is like, oh, no, um, he's at the beach cafe. He shouldn't be out at all right now in this storm. And turns out, and we find out before anybody else does, that this man is not Jody. He is, in fact, Frankie LaSalle pretending to be Jody. And he has already called Tony Sargent's secretary and pretended that Tony Sargent's dad was in a terrible car accident and they needed to get a hold of him right away. So the secretary said that he was at his cousin's house in Malibu. Like, he's done so much work to try to track Tony down. They used the exact same convention where the one character is like, huh, that seems a little bit suspicious. And then there's three asterisks. And then having learned from the previous time there were three asterisks, I was like, oh, wow, that guy's, that guy's Frankie. Yeah, it's like the three asterisks, asterisks mean this is about to, there's about to be a twist. 
pay attention. <laughs> twist, twist is coming. <laughs> um, so let's go back to the fact that there's a rainstorm. Um, now, I moved to Southern California in the middle of one of its worst droughts. So my sample size of rainstorms is a little bit skewed and climate change and all of that. I can count the number of thunderstorms I have experienced in my seven years living in Southern California on one hand. Um, But when the storms are heavy, there are big mudslides. I think it is totally like balls out nonsense that they decided that the big thing, (laughs) the big drama in Malibu was going to be such a heavy rainstorm that it was dangerous to even be outdoors, which was another thing I looked up. Jessica says something (laughs) like when there's lightning, it's dangerous to be this close to the ocean. And I was like, in a house? Because the Bennett's house is by the ocean. And it is very dangerous to be on the beach during a lightning storm. It is not particularly dangerous to be inside near the beach during a lightning storm, as long as you're not standing next to like a circuit board or something. Um, So it it just so happens that just last year in Malibu, there was a real natural disaster. There was the the Woolsey fire. It was a a terrible fire. I know people that lost their homes in that fire. Uh, So fire would have been a natural choice as the enemy. Like everybody has to evacuate. That's on my mind right now. Um, And I thought like, oh, yeah, but fire was the big thing that scared everybody in the first summer special edition book ended in fire. Uh, uh, That was up in Northern California. And but that's no excuse because literally the last super edition book ended with a big, heavy rainstorm. So anyway, that's just my that's just me getting on my soapbox about how this was a strange choice. But the further they got into it, the more I was convinced because of the mudslides. I forgot about the mudslides, which is a real danger that causes real problems here. So maybe they gave the same outline to two different ghostwriters and they submitted these stories and they just sort of like, okay, well they're written down. Let's make them a little bit different, you know, (laughs) and they just, I love this this one spring break and it's totally different. I love this idea. And and one of the books, Spring Break, was written by an Elizabeth, and Malibu Summer was written by a Jessica. Oh, this yeah. is my favorite new question, by the way. In future episodes, maybe in season four, we can ask the guests, not only are you an Elizabeth or a Jessica, but do you think the ghostwriter was an Elizabeth or a Jessica? I, I'm pretty sure this ghostwriter was a Jessica. <laughs> or at least she wanted Jessica to be more heroic than Elizabeth in this story. Yes. Yeah, so speaking of Jessica's heroism... Um, I mentioned that Jessica says something about it being dangerous to be outside in the lightning storm. You alluded earlier to a sixth sense that twins have about each other, um, which anecdotally is something I have heard twins describe, kind of knowing what the other is thinking, like something like that. Jessica is worried about Elizabeth, so she just goes to the Bennett's house. Well, Elizabeth has gone out on a secret date with Jamie, so Jessica has no way of knowing where she could possibly be. Maria doesn't know either. But Maria also can't find Taryn um, because Taryn has run away. 
she has gone outside in the rainstorm and the book describes her like not even noticing that it was raining because she was so determined. She's going to Nebraska. And the book actually does have a kind of a joke where it says she didn't know what Nebraska, where Nebraska was or what it was like, but it had to be better than Malibu. Well, and this is one of the things that made me wonder whether this book is a little bit of a role reversal for Elizabeth because she happened to be out on a secret day and the big fight happened. So yeah. she doesn't quite comprehend why the little girl is even more sullen than normal. Yeah. Uh, but she is sick. And I guess it, it's, it's made credible that she actually is sick and not just angry at the fight. Um, and then, and then she ditches again, which is when, when Taryn decides to make her break. Um, when she sees Maria on the phone, uh, she takes her, you know, child size suitcase and, and sneaks out of the house. Thanks to Jessica's spidey sense. She, she wants to find Elizabeth's cause something wrong has happened. And I don't know if it, you know, she knew about the Terran, her spidey sense was flagging the Terran situation. I guess that must be it. I don't think um, so. But as soon as she finds out that Terran, they can't find Terran, Maria and Jessica go into like high octane, like we've got to find her mode. Understandably, they call the police, but they're having a hard time passing roads because the storm is so bad that there is mudslides, there's like a tree in the road. And um, finally, they do find Terran. And I am going to read, this is the first of a couple lengthy passages that I would like to read, if you don't mind. Uh, because they're so exciting and amazing. And I think that they get the book across so well. Are you ready? Yep. So they finally find Taryn. And Taryn is like standing on a bridge in the rain and the bridge is about to break. And the like the police can't get to her because they can't get her to get close enough to the edge of the platform to grab her. It was kind of hard to picture the blocking of this scene for me, but she's on some kind of a, of a rickety bridge that's about to fall, and she's going to fall to her death if the bridge collapses. So high stakes. Suddenly a sharp crack echoed over the wind. A board had snapped off the platform. Taryn covered her face with her hands. They all heard her thin, pathetic scream. Come on, we can't waste any more time, Jessica shrieked. The next minute she had ripped off her slicker so the policeman could grasp her by the waist. As they did, Jessica heard the sound of an ambulance's siren. She took a deep breath, trying not to look down at the swirling water beneath her. Taryn, she cried. The police strained outward with her, but even so, Jessica couldn't get anywhere near the petrified child. Taryn wouldn't budge, not even an inch. She just stared at Jessica, tears coursing down her cheeks. It's no good, Jessica called back to the policeman. I can't get close enough. Can you get her to come toward you? One of them asked. Jessica's mind was a blank. Then suddenly she thought of something. Taryn, she cried again. Come here, Taryn, I have a secret to tell you. Taryn's eyes were now glued to Jessica. Jessica knew it wasn't her imagination. Taryn had stopped crying long enough to listen. Once there was a wicked little girl named Taryn, Jessica shouted, reaching out her arms. She was so wicked she wouldn't come when Jessica called her. She just sat there and sat there. She was so wicked, and do you know what happened to her? Taryn stared at her dumbfounded. Come here, Taryn, Jessica called, stretching forward as far as she could. Come here, and I'll tell you what happened to that wicked little girl. The next thing she knew, Taryn was creeping toward her, her blue eyes round with terror. Closer, Taryn, Jessica cried, the words tearing her sore, hoarse throat. Come closer, one little bit closer, and I'll tell you about that wicked little girl. 
She felt the policemen gripping her waist with all their might. Just a little farther, Jessica felt Taryn's fingers brush her own. She took a deep breath and grabbed the little girl's wrists. Then, using all the strength she had, she pulled her off the platform. And then it's like not a moment too soon, because as soon as she pulls her, the bridge collapses, and it's just like she saved her from certain death. The end of that story. Well, no, it's not the end of that story. There's still more drama. There, there is. Do they, do they, do they cut to the? I think first they go to the hospital with Taryn, right? Because Taryn's like not responsive in the ambulance, and then they go to the hospital, yeah. and Audrey and Malcolm are there. And and, and this reminds me of, of another thing from my upbringing because what they have the doctor do is come out and say she needs a reason to live to pull her through. It's basically what 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 he says and. Uh, it yep. reminds me of a of a short movie that was shown to most Mormons my age and maybe some other people called Cypher in the Snow. It's about a little boy who nobody loves and who dies, collapses in the snow. They have investigators interview anyone and they conclude, well, he died because no one loved him. Moral <gasps> of the story, don't make fun of little kids oh or God. they will die. That's crazy. It's a really bleak uh, short movie, but you know, they showed it to us in church in Sunday school. I was really fascinated by this stuff because of uh, Mormon cinema. It was filmed at BYU and it it was filmed up in the mountains where there's lots of snow and everything. And uh, a friend of mine uh, that was at Doc Films at the University of Chicago, when I described this, he had seen it and it had also scarred his life, but he was not Mormon. He went to like a Catholic school and they, they showed this to him. And uh, he, he, he claims that he got in an argument with the teacher about whether someone would really die because he didn't love them. Well, um, I think it's a but, nice message, but it sounds like it's delivered in like a very horrifying way. Um, I don't know. Uh, but <laughs> you know what? The, to go back to your original point, though, the doctor, when he said this, I had to roll my eyes because these books go back to this again and again, like everybody and it's like if you're in the hospital there's just to amp up the tension a little bit more they have to come up with a way to give the person in bed a reason to live so um i was happy that jessica wasn't the (laughs) one they do this a lot i will say they've done it before um famously in the wrong kind of girl book number 10 about when annie whitman (laughs) is in a coma and jessica has to apologize to her and agree to let her be on the cheerleading squad uh, to get her to come out of her coma. But this time, Audrey and Malcolm are the ones who are going to get Taryn to find the will to live. They have a really dramatic change of heart about their entire marriage and how much they've been ignoring little Taryn, which Elizabeth says something to Taryn when Taryn is feeling down about how Taryn just has to get her parents to understand how much they love each other. <laughs> which I think that was really bad advice. Although she just said it in passing. It's hard when you're talking to little kids sometimes to not to feel like, oh shit, everything I say to them might potentially stick with them their entire lives and be part of how they shape their identities. But in this case, the book doesn't explicitly say that Taryn has this in mind when she decides to run away, but that's definitely what happens. She nearly dies and her parents totally reform their entire relationship, or at least they promise to. (laughs) And Jessica tells Audrey about the wicked little girl stories and Audrey changes the story and says there was a wicked, you know, man and a woman and they, you know, it was the parents and she there and they had a beautiful little girl. And she tells a story where basically she's apologizing and, and letting Taryn know how much she, they love her. And Taryn is like, Oh, mommy. And it's like, they knew that Taryn was going to be okay. Were, are, the, are wicked little girl stories like a known thing that you tell children? Not to because me. It was really re- 
Okay. It was really remarkable that she was going, uh, Jessica just said, oh yeah, but my dad used to tell these stories. And she didn't even explain how the stories went. But the, the uh, Audrey goes immediately from hearing this to not only completely comprehending the wicked little girl story form, but like subverting it in a key way <laughs> to make it about about how they're bad people. And it's like, wow, it, it's almost like she took a mini course on wicked little girl stories <laughs> to, to do that. Because it was very well done. And I, I, I'm skeptical, uh, as I'm skeptical with a few things about this story, mostly, you know, Sweet Valley being on the ocean, that somebody could, in extemporaneous remarks, thread the needle so well. Um, but it was, it was a payoff. The Wicked Little Girl thing really pays off in this story. Yes. So, meanwhile, we rejoin our other drama already in progress where Frankie LaSalle is uh, coming to get Tony. And Elizabeth has driven out to the Beach Cafe again to meet Jamie Galbraith, who she doesn't know is Tony Sargent, but the readers, we do. And so does Frankie LaSalle, knows all about Jamie Galbraith and about Tony Sargent. So they are once they get to the restaurant, Elizabeth and Tony, Jamie, are stuck there because the storm was so bad. Not long after... Frankie pretending to be Jody. Are you sticking with me here, listeners? That's complicated. There's a lot of people pretending to be other people. And some of the people are pretending to be other people that are also a part of the story. So Frankie is pretending to be Jody. He's gone to the sergeant's house. He's found out where Tony slash Jamie really is. But then another man comes to the sergeant's house and he says that he is Jody. And Lucy and Josh are like, oh, shit, especially Lucy, who's like, that's not the man I told where Tony was. Oh, no. And so then they call the police and and the police. Luckily, Lucy knows that they went to the beach cafe, so they know where to look. But unfortunately, Lucy knows they went to the beach cafe because she sent Frankie to the beach cafe. So Frankie shows up to the beach cafe. And this is the second of the lengthy passages that I would like to read. And I'm going to try to Try to do my best Frankie LaSalle impression, how he sounded in my head. Okay? Remember, he means business. <laughs> Remember that he means business. That's your motivation. Means business. Okay, thank you. Meaning you're probably going to kill someone. Some kind of revenge killing. All right, so basically, Frankie LaSalle shows up in the restaurant. These are, they're the, they're, It's only the like waiters and Tony and Elizabeth that are in the restaurant. And he is... Like, he immediately shows up, and he's got a knife, and he's he's all on the attack. Okay. Jamie Galbraith, the man said tauntingly, making a threatening gesture with the knife. You think you can get away with anything you please, don't you? Just because you're a big celebrity, you think you can mess around with my girlfriend as soon as I'm out of the picture? Well, I'll tell you something, Sergeant. No one messes with Frankie LaSalle. You understand me? No one. Elizabeth's mouth was dry as cotton. She couldn't have moved for the world. What on earth is going on, she wondered, dizzy with fear. Why is this man threatening Jamie? Why is he calling him Sergeant? You're not going to get away with this, Frankie, Jamie was saying in a calm voice, backing slightly away from the table toward the glass wall of the cafe. How did you find out where I was? He repeated. Elizabeth knew Jamie well enough to read his intentions in his eyes. He was stalling for time. At least, she thought she knew him. Frankie grimaced at Tony. That little twit of a secretary you've got in L.A. gave it all away. I gave her a great line about being with the police, and she fell for it. Hook, line, and sinker. 
She told me you were pretending to be Jamie Galbraith, college boy, hanging out at your cousin's place in Malibu. Elizabeth felt a wild tremor run through her. She could barely believe what she was hearing. Jamie wasn't Jamie at all. Then who was he? She pressed the palms of her hands to her temples as if she could force her mind to settle down, start working to find a way out of this nightmare. Because she knew one thing, whoever Jamie was, she loved him, and his life was in danger. Listen, Frankie, nothing happened between Lisa and me. It's all a mistake. We just had one drink together, that's all. She was lonesome. If I'd known about you... You stupid stars, Frank said savagely, lunging forward, a menacing look on his face. You think just because you're famous, you can take anything you want from anybody. Well, that just isn't the way it is, guy. I'm going to teach you a lesson once and for all. The next thing Elizabeth knew, Frankie had sprung at Jamie, the knife flashing in his hand. She screamed, jumping to her feet, knocking the chair over behind her. Help us, she hollered to the waiters. Frankie was on top of Jamie, pinning him down. The cafe was filled with the horrible sound of panting and physical contact as the two struggled on the floor. With a sudden, sharp wrench of his body, Jamie rolled out from under Frankie's grasp. They were on their feet again. I'm gonna get you, Frankie kept grunting. Jamie swung at him, missed, and swore. Taking advantage of his loss of balance, Frankie grabbed Jamie by his collar, the knife gleaming in his right hand. Jamie screamed. Elizabeth felt a wave of dizziness as she saw a line of red blood across the shoulder of Jamie's pale yellow shirt. Get the knife, one of the waiters was shouting at her. But Elizabeth didn't have time to think strategy. She acted purely on instinct. Grabbing the pewter vase from the center of the table, she struck Frankie as hard as she could on the back of his head. With a terrible groan, he fell forward, right on top of Jamie, and the knife clattered to the floor. That may set a record for the longest passage I have ever read on Sweet Valley Diaries, but it was very exciting. And I just wanted to do a Frankie voice, you know? You got two voices in that one. Yeah. Well, three if you count Elizabeth. Four if you count the waiter. (laughs) But I just like that he says, he calls him Guy. That's not the way it's going to be, Guy. It's not the way it's going to be this time, Guy. (laughs) Well, when you mean business, that's how you refer to people. (laughs) So... Yeah, Elizabeth is pissed off that Jamie lied and isn't doesn't really exist. Uh, and she's glad he's alive. But basically, she goes to the hospital with him and is like, I see, you just thought that you could pretend to be someone else for a while and I could be some girl you had fun with while you were taking a summer breather. And he's like, no, baby, it ain't like that. And she's like, I don't know why I made him Frank for a second, but she, (laughs) he's like, Elizabeth, no, that's not what it is at all. But she like won't accept his calls and she's heartbroken about the whole thing. This could never go anywhere. Even though she doesn't even really seem to care that much that he's actually 17, which seems like really good news to me. Yeah, I I thought that would be the the Shakespearean reveal. Like, aha, it turns out that I'm a wealthy prince the whole time and you can totally be with me. And it's very frustrating Again, this is what makes me find Elizabeth's character completely robotic here because she repeats it again and again that, nope, couldn't have been interested in me. I was just a summer fling. We're such different worlds. I fell in love with someone that doesn't exist, a fake person. It was all fake. And Frankie burst in when he was about to confess all of this to her. They made it really clear, like, I've got something very important to tell you. And she shut him down when the entire narrative 
there, I don't think there's anything in the text that suggests that she's right about any of this. No. Um, in fact, at the very end, when they go to the concert, uh, I hope I'm not jumping ahead too much. No, for not you. at all. He plays his new single. <laughs> <laughs> she she realizes, and this is this is quoting her thoughts, I guess. So he had cared for her after all. And even though the lyrics say, we'll meet again, I think I always knew, my summer girl, that it was you. <clears throat> even though that's the lyrics, we'll meet again, she immediately says, oh, he cared for me after all. She says that she knew that what they had was the most wonderful, painful experience of her life. And she knew that they would never see each other again. And I was like, this is like the last page of the book. I was like, God damn it. I like Tony Sargent as a character. She's about to start dating this asshole named Jeffrey French, who is more boring than Enid in my book. And oh, I like Enid, but I I don't like Jeffrey French. I ship Elizabeth and Todd. I've made my myself clear on this point. But if she's not going to be with Todd, she could be with this amazing guy named Tony Sargent, who is a rock star. Like, I want Tony back. I want Tony to come back. And the book basically all but says they will never see each other again. Like, when uh, Sweet Valley Confidential 10 years later came out, how come Tony Sargent didn't come back into Elizabeth's life? And that's who she starts having sex with. I mean, that would have been way more exciting than <laughs> the nonsense that actually happens in that book, which I will not address in this venue to give it credence. <laughs> but yeah, I was sad that that Tony and, and then we have read already read books, you know, uh, book 30, which is the next book that happens after after this book was released. Like if we were living in 1986, and reading these books as they were released, the next one would be book 30 jealous lies. And there's no mention of Malibu, there's no mention of Tony Sargent, unless I just missed it because I didn't know how to look for it. But there's definitely no mention of Tony Sargent. So that's just the weird alternate universe uh, that these super editions take place in. But that's the end of the book. So I think the way to interpret the super editions is sort of like, I don't know if you ever read newspaper comic strip when you were a kid. They have Sunday comics that are in color, and then they have the weeklies. And there would often be narratives going in the weekly strips, but very seldom did the Sundays intersect. And the reason for that, I read in like one of these Calvin and Hobbes, you know, annotated books is the deadlines for the Sundays are much earlier uh, because they need to colorize it and everything. And so it's a lot of work to actually make them sync up. And plus some papers only run dailies and some only run Sundays. And so it doesn't even make sense. And so what you do is you have continuing narrative. And I think those are the numbered books here. And then you just have these other one-off things and they're just flashy Sunday strip panels and they have their own <laughs> self-contained store and they're in color and more lavishly produced, although <laughs> I, I, I don't know about the writing in this book, but um, but anyway, that, that that's my analogy. I like I think that, that metaphor that a lot. Just, these are the Sunday strips, and they're not they're not meant to be in the world. And actually, that would explain why there have been multiple summers and why so many things happen in their lives because these are just different universes. Um, I don't know. I love this metaphor. I think that's very effective. Well, we are recording an epically long episode here. I think that now would be an appropriate time for us to cover Lila's little plot line in the book. And in order to do that, I think we should adjourn to the part of the podcast where we talk about boys. So the boys in Lila's storyline. One of them is fictional, but he was described in a way that I appreciated a lot. 
Um, apparently, Lila is reading romance novels because when she first gets to Malibu and she's talking about the like kind of guy that she would be into, um, apparently she's reading a book about a where the protagonist, the male hero's name is Rock Owens. He has everything. Looks, money, a couple of villas in Europe. <laughs> Listen to this. Rock was tall and swarthy. His dark eyes flashed like fire in his tanned face. The minute Eleanor saw him, she knew this was it. He was the one. The muscles rippled in his arms. As he raised her to him, his manly face filled with passion. Kiss me, Rock, Eleanor moaned softly. <laughs> so this is Lila's dream man, and I just really appreciated that Lila is reading a romance novel aloud to Jessica, and she wants to date an older guy. She really wants a sophisticated older man. What she gets instead is a fellow named Ben, who she thinks must be like 19. Oh yeah, he's so old and sophisticated. If he's not a senior, you know, he's in college. <laughs> yeah. Um, here's a description of Ben. Lila couldn't help admiring Ben's bronzed physique in his plaid bathing suit. He was really a good looking guy, a little more clean cut than some of the boys she dated, and definitely more sophisticated. So he like doesn't want to take her to the movies. And we find out that it is also a plot line that these books have used before to different effect. He is 15 years old and doesn't have his driver's license yet. This happened uh, before in, uh, it's the one, oh, I think it's Racing Hearts is the book, book number nine. The B plot, Jessica falls in love with a boy at her dad's office, then finds out that he's ick 15, never mind that these girls are 16. And Ben is like a junior in high school because he skipped the grade or something. The whole thing is, uh, I, okay. So I don't know where Lila is situated in terms of being a reasonably savvy person, but when he <laughs> I don't can't either. give her a straight answer for why she, he doesn't want to go to the movies, she thinks to herself, obviously he's already seen the two movies I want to see. It's like, <laughs> why, why on earth would you think that? I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe maybe girls are, are different, but like my my first inclination would be like, well, obviously he has another girlfriend and we can't be seen in public or can't be seen there in public or something like that. That my would be immediately first thought was definitely that he was married. <laughs> like he's oh older. He's <laughs> like he's way older and he's married. That was what I was thinking. But the opposite ended up being true. And then and then once she finds out that He's in high school after all. There's a moment when she doesn't yet know his age. And so she's still holding out hope that he's like maybe 18 or so. she thinks that, oh, maybe, maybe he was held back. Like this would be a very desirable thing to date a guy that had been held back so that he could be older <laughs> than the other people. And so I, dumb. I, I just don't, I don't know. I mean, the, one of the reasons that Lila is so upset about this is because now other people are going to find out about it. And she's talked such a big game about hating younger boys and only they're so jejun and, and she wants a sophisticated man. And she's right. Because as soon as Jessica finds out that Ben is 15, Jessica makes a point of Elizabeth is like, Oh, it seems like she really likes him. Like get cut her some slack. And Jessica's like, hell no, I'm going to give her such a hard time about this until Jessica finally gives in and stops making a big deal about it because it's like not fun for her anymore so and weirdly this book unfolds with lila it has is going study with ben and just is going study with cliff and elizabeth is the one who's got this secret romance and when the book ends they're all still together 
but uh, they're not. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> like, this book is as long as those relationships last, so. <laughs> Were there any other boys we should talk about? I don't know. I guess we've talked enough about Cliff. I, I do want to say, though, that in the in the conclusion, in the last chapters, which felt kind of like an epilogue, even though I don't think any of the events here happened after July 4th, again, the whole story is very compressed. Uh, there's the fact that Jessica no longer wants to switch with Elizabeth because yes, Cliff told her, and this was so bizarre to me, but Cliff told her, well, if we're next door to each other, it would be too much. So we need some distance. You know, you can't live next door. You need to live six long blocks away. Um, and she's apparently fine with it. <laughs> she cares so much about the relationship that she's just like, all right, well, if Cliff thinks it's better if we're not neighbors, then I won't try to switch anymore, even though I'm sleeping on a cot next to a three-month-old baby. <laughs> um, and the person in the other house is a little girl that I genuinely care about, but whatever. And um, whose parents adore me because I saved their child and are yeah. super wealthy. Oh, I was trying to find Cliff's intro so that we could read um, his our first impressions of, of Cliff. Lila has just described Rock, this fictional character, Rock Owens. And Jessica says, speaking of finding someone, that's the sort of guy I'd like to meet. She gave a low whistle of admiration <laughs> as she watched a tall, well-built blonde jogging toward them along the edge of the water. <laughs> so that's all. We, we don't get too much too much description of cliff i don't what color are his eyes come on sweet valley you're holding out on me up close cliff was even cuter than jessica thought cliff laughed his teeth were straight and bright white <laughs> this is what we're getting from cliff not a lot not a lot of detail on cliff um so you can probably picture him gladiators and tony i mean i don't know what to say about tony because he has two different looks. You know, he's wearing brown contacts, but really he's blue-eyed and blonde-haired. And, oh, when Elizabeth sees what he really looks like, she is like, damn. <clears throat> he looks like another person entirely. His hair was blonde again and stood up a little in the front. He was wearing tight-fitting black jeans and a wrinkled white shirt unbuttoned halfway. But his voice, that incredible husky voice, as she closed her eyes, she could almost imagine they were alone together at the cafe. Alone with the surf and the sand and the sun. That's Tony Sargent. Well, and when he's first introduced as Jamie, I thought that there might be some rivalry between the two. Because, oh, yes, he's a 21-year-old. Great way to get leverage on, on Lila. He, he goes to Yale. He's very sophisticated, all this nonsense. But, but as soon as, as, soon as uh, Elizabeth describes him as having wireframe spectacles, she's just completely turned off, like, oh, glasses, dork. <laughs> Don't want to talk to that you guy. You mean Jessica is? Okay, right. As soon as Elizabeth yeah. describes his wireframe glasses, Jessica's completely disinterested. And I, I find that In a fact, little bit remarkable. Well, it is it is remarkable, and it's also important because listeners, perhaps you've put this together. Once 
Jessica is back in the sergeant's house, Jamie Galbraith is still a guest at the sergeant's house. So she's living in the room next door to Tony Sargent's room during this whole time. But she has no idea that he's Tony Sargent because of his transformation. And also, I think these details about his life have really fooled her. And the fact that she's into Cliff. In fact, um, addressing this, Jessica is talking about him and she says he plays strange music. I hope he goes soon. Cliff (laughs) patted her hand and smiled. So you mean I shouldn't be jealous because you're sharing close quarters with an older intellectual guy from Yale? Jessica's aqua eyes opened wide. You've got to be kidding, she said, insulted. How can you even suggest something as terrible as that? Don't you think I've got better taste? (laughs) Which... Is a is a kind of a harsh critique of men who go to Yale. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure what part of it it was. I I feel like I don't know. I thought it was the glasses that that turned her off. Uh, maybe I'm taking that too personally because I I couldn't identify with <laughs> with any of the male characters in this book very yeah. well, except maybe you know when he was incognito, Jamie Galbraith. As long as it's not Frankie LaSalle. <laughs> That that's a. I also love that scene because they, for some reason, are playing backgammon. They're rolling the dice and they're moving yeah. the the pieces along uh, diamonds. And then after you know this whole flirty thing about you know haha I, I I have better taste than that. They they reach in for this kiss over the backgammon board and you know they doesn't even notice that she's mangling the pieces on the board. And I, I can't. <laughs> I can't think of another work where there's a romantic backgammon scene, so that check that box. That is a great point. Well, with that, I think that we should probably close up this episode. But I do have to ask you, Frank, uh, having read this one book, which was a little bit of an outlier, would you describe yourself as more of a Jessica or an Elizabeth? Well, I, I don't. I don't identify with Jessica's desires but I identify with her means. Like I, I don't I don't get all Twitter pated and uh, boy crazy and I don't worry that much about status, but I have a high tolerance for bad schemes and I have, uh, I don't tend to think about potential negative consequences of this. And, um, <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm certainly a lot more reckless and it, it describes her as being messy, but, you know, even in the, even this house is too messy for her. So I, I'm definitely more of a Jessica. I feel like you are painting a picture of yourself as a very mysterious character and the gladiators are going to love it. So Frank, <laughs> thank you so much for uh, reading this book. Um, I can definitely hook you up with some Ned Wakefield uh, heavier tomes, although I think that Ned's jokes are more of a collective body of (laughs) of jokes over the course of the book. But if I find a Ned, I can think of a couple of Ned heavy ones. Actually, the very first book of the whole series, Double Love, has a pretty heavy courtroom aspect to it. Oh. And uh, so with that, uh, listeners, um, Sweet Valley Diaries will be returning with season four on December 5th. So that's a Thursday. We're still sticking on Thursdays. If you're not subscribed, why aren't you subscribed already? Just be subscribed. It's much easier than trying to figure out through like smoke signals or like, what's it called when they wave the flag? Semaphore? 
Like, that's not going to get... I don't even know who's sending semaphore messages about Sweet Valley Diaries. Not me. I don't know semaphore. And also follow me on Instagram. Follow the show at Sweet Valley Diaries on Instagram, where throughout the entire month, I've been counting down via haiku, uh, recapping each of the plots of each of the 30 books that we have read thus far in haiku form. So if nothing else, you know, read it because I am spending way too much time on it. Are you intrigued, Frank? Yeah, no, no. I I don't use uh, Instagram very often, but that sounds amazing. Well, if you're not an Instagram follower, you can just go to Instagram.com slash Sweet Valley Diaries on the internet. I don't think they make you sign in to look at it, but I could be wrong. Um, Frank, thank you so much. We got to go. I got to go to work. All right. Have fun. Welcome to Sweet Valley Diaries, the podcast where I forgot to write an intro this week because I am at the end of my hiatus and apparently I forgot how podcasting works. But don't worry, we're going to talk about a lot of crazy shit. (laughs) I will probably go back and edit in an intro later.